Okay, turn with me to Matthew chapter 9. We're going to start a new section today. Matthew 9, verses 27 to 34. So let's read the passage and then we will begin. As Jesus went down from there, two blind men followed him, crying out, Have mercy on us, son of David. When he entered the house, the blind men came up to him, and Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? They said to him, Yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, saying, It shall be done to you according to your faith. And their eyes were opened. And Jesus sternly warned them, See that no one knows about this. But they went out and spread the news about him throughout all that land. As they were going out, a mute, demon-possessed man was brought to him. After the demon was cast out, the mute man spoke, and the crowds were amazed and were saying, Nothing like this has ever been seen in Israel. But the Pharisees were saying, He cast out the demons by the ruler of the demons. When God created man, he gave him dominion over the earth. Uh, Adam was the king of the earth. He had the right to rule, to name the animals, to dominate the created order. Uh, he was king, and his kingdom was an incredibly wondrous and amazing creation from the incomparable infinite mind of God. Uh, a kingdom of light and glory and wonder and beauty. But man sinned, and he lost his crown. Uh, he lost his dominion. The kingdom of light became replaced by the kingdom of darkness on this earth. Uh, man's dominion was usurped by Satan. The beauty of God's creation became corrupted by ugliness, its harmony by confusion and disorder, its health by disease and decay, its happiness by sorrow and pain, its goodness by sin and evil, and its glory by guilt and shame. Uh, sin turned man's life into the path of death. But almost as soon as man fell, God promised that he would someday restore the kingdom. Uh, someday man would again be the king of the earth. Uh, someday the dominion would be taken from Satan, the kingdom of darkness would be end, and the kingdom of light and glory would return, and it would be someday and forever. Uh, in fact, in Genesis 3.15, in the middle of pronouncing the curse upon the man, the woman, and the serpent for their rebellion against him, God gave the promise that there would come one who would be called the seed of the woman, and that very one would crush the serpent's head. And so from that time on, the Old Testament was filled with promises that God would bring a deliverer, a king, and that that king would restore the kingdom and once again establish the rule of God. That he would wipe out disease, illness, pain, death, sorrow, war, and strife. And the prophets just over and over and over again repeat that he is coming. Uh, they refer to him as the anointed one, the king of kings, the healer, the righteous ruler. Uh, and the one who would destroy sin and death. The, the Jews knew him as the Messiah, uh, the anointed one, uh, the prophet, priest, and king uh, who would surpass all others. And someday the Old Testament prophet said he will come and establish his eternal kingdom of righteousness and the earth will be like God intended it to be. Now, as we've said, said many times, 
in this study of Matthew. Matthew's purpose in writing is to tell us that Jesus is that Messiah, that he is the promised king who will right the wrongs, reverse the curse, destroy the enemy, establish the kingdom. And in order to convince us that Jesus has the power to do that, in chapters 8 and 9, Matthew records for us how many primary miracles? How many? Nine. Nine. Uh, he does nine miracles, all of which are intended to prove that Jesus is the Messiah. These miracles demonstrate Jesus' power over disease, over the elements of nature, sin, Satan, and death. Now let me put this in context for you. The prophet Isaiah said in Isaiah 32, I'm sorry, 33, 22, and 24, For the Lord is our judge, the Lord is our lawgiver, the Lord is our king. He will save us, and no resident will say, I am sick. Uh, in other words, in the eternal kingdom of Christ, there will be no sickness. Uh, in Isaiah 57, 19, the prophet says that in the kingdom there will be peace. Peace to him who is far and peace to him who is near, says the Lord, and I will heal him. So the Jews anticipated that this Messiah would bring the end of disease in his glorious kingdom. And as just as there was no disease before the fall, there will be no disease after the restoration. Now, if Jesus is the one who has the power to do that, he must be able to demonstrate such power. And that's why Matthew shows us that he has power over disease. Second, the, the next three miracles we saw in chapter 9 deal with his power over disorder. Uh, the disorder in the physical world. Uh, disorder in the spiritual world relative to demons. And disorder in the moral world and relative to sin. And if you read Isaiah 35, 1 and 2, you find that when the kingdom comes, the Messiah will change the earth. It says, the wilderness and the earth will be glad, and the Arabah, that's the desert, will rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It will blossom profusely and rejoice with rejoicing and shout of joy. Verse 6 says, the waters will break forth in the wilderness and streams in the Arabah, the desert. So the topography is going to change. Uh, the geography will change as he deals with the physical and natural elements. If the Messiah is to do that, he has to demonstrate that kind of power. And so that's why in chapter 8, Matthew points to the miracle of Jesus stilling the wind and the waves as evidence of his power over the physical world. Messiah is also coming to defeat Satan and his demons. Daniel 9 to 11 talks about this conflict and this interplay between the holy angels and fallen demons and how God and his angels will be victorious. And if Jesus is going to be able to do that in the end, he must demonstrate such power. And so Matthew picks out a miracle in which Jesus cast out the greatest number of demons at a single time, a legion of demons from the Gadarene demoniacs, as demonstration of his power to do so in the kingdom. And the third area will be the Messiah's power over sin. And so Jesus is seen as forgiving the sins of the paralytic in chapter 9, verses 1 to 8. Why? Because in Isaiah 33, 24, it says that in the kingdom, the people who dwell there will be forgiven their iniquity. So the Messiah must forgive iniquity. 
conquer demons. He must deal with the physical world and diseases. So if Jesus is to make the claim to be the Messiah, he has to prove it. And so G Matthew very carefully selects these miracles for that affirmation. And now we've been looking at this third set of miracles. And the major one, Matthew lists, demonstrates Jesus' power over death. That was the healing of Jairus' daughter in verses 18 to 26 that we finished looking up at last week. And Isaiah 65 tells us that during the millennial kingdom, the Messiah will return the length of life to its pre-flood days in which people will live for hundreds of years. Uh, and Daniel 12.2 says that he will have the power to raise the dead. And so if Jesus is the Messiah, then he must demonstrate that power, and that is precisely what he did in raising Jairus' daughter from the dead. And now Matthew is going to go on to tell us that in these other miracles, that Jesus not only has power over dead people, but he has power over the dead factors of a living human being, uh, such as their eyes and their ears and tongues. And the Old Testament predicted that also. In Isaiah 29, 18, it says, that during the kingdom, out of, on that day, the deaf will hear the words of a book. And out of their gloom and darkness, the eyes of the blind will see. And then Isaiah 35, 5 and 6, we're told, Then the eyes of the blind will be opened, and the ears of the deaf will be unstopped. Then the lame will leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute will shout for joy. Uh, so the Old Testament predicted, that when the Messiah came, he would bring back life to dead faculties. Uh, miracles of sight and sound. And that's precisely what you have in the, our passage here in Matthew 9, 27 to 33. It's another affirmation, another demonstration of the fact that Jesus is the prophesied Messiah because he fulfills them explicitly. Matthew didn't just randomly pick out these miracles. He knew exactly what he was doing when he picked them out. Because he was building the case for Jesus as the Messiah. And the more you examine the New Testament, you find that Jesus provided a plethora of previews of the coming kingdom. For example, on the Mount of Transfiguration, the disciples saw a glimpse of his glory. Later in Acts, on the day of Pentecost, when they were all filled with the Spirit and began to speak in other languages, it says that, this is that which was spoken of through the prophet Joel. In other words, this was a sample of what would ultimately come in the fullness of the final form of his glorious kingdom. Uh, so Jesus' life was a series of glimpses of the ultimate power to be demonstrated when he established his eternal rule in the new heaven and new earth. And so as we come to these next miracles, we see that they picture for us the Messiah's ability to bring life back to otherwise dead faculties of a human being. The first miracle relates to sight. The second miracle relates to sound. So let's begin with a miracle of sight. Let me read again verses 27 to 31. As Jesus went from there, two blind men followed him, crying out, Have mercy on us, son of David. When he entered the house, the blind men came up to him, and Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? They said to him, Yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, saying, It shall be done to you at, according to your faith. And their eyes were opened. And Jesus sternly warned them, See that no one knows about this. But they went out and spread the news about him throughout all that land. 
So when Jesus departed from Jairus' house after raising his daughter from the dead, two blind men began to follow him. It's the same day, it's evening time. Uh, Jesus has had a very busy day. He's reasoned with the disciples of John the Baptist. He's healed the woman with a 12-year-long hemorrhage. He's raised Jairus' 12-year-old daughter from the dead. Now he's headed out probably toward Peter's house to get some rest. There is undoubtedly still a crowd of people following him. Some of them who followed him to, are those who followed him to Jairus' house. Now it's probable that there were added some of the flute players and the wailers um, for who were present when Jesus broke up their funeral by raising Jairus' daughter from the dead. But he moves from Jairus' house back towards the house in which he's staying, most likely Peter's house. And as he does, the story unfolds. Now, the first thing I want you to note is the condition of the men. Uh, it says in verse 27 that they are blind. Uh, blindness was common in biblical times, as it still is in the undeveloped countries of the world. In fact, there are an estimated 43 million people in the world today who are totally blind, and another 295 million uh, who have moderate to severe visual impairment. Uh, so it is a serious problem. And the gospel records include more healings of blind people than any other specific type of healing. Uh, that may indicate its pervasiveness. Uh, unsanitary conditions, brilliant sunlight, excessive heat, blowing sand, accidents, war, disease, infectious organisms, all of those things contributed to blindness. Many of the people were blind from birth. And very commonly, that type of blindness was caused by a form of gonorrhea. Uh, sometimes it was not even known to be existing in the mother, but when the baby passed through the birth canal, those particular germs lodged in the conjunctiva, uh, the, which is the outer membrane of the eye, and within only three days, the child would be permanently blind. Uh, that's why today when a baby's born, uh, they put those special antiseptic drops into the baby's eyes to kill any kind of germs such as those. Uh, and for all intents and purposes, we have eliminated blindness caused by those sexually transmitted diseases. Uh, that may also have been what was in the hearts of the disciples in John 9-2 when they saw that man who was born uh, blind and they asked, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he would be born blind? Yes, their theology was messed up with a, about the disability always being an indicator of God's judgment. Uh, but there may also have been a little, little bit of understanding of the physical uh, to that situation. Uh, because very often, venereal disease contracted in a sinful situation was the cause of a child's blindness. <clears throat> Uh, so that was a common thing for people who were born blind. There was also the infectious bacteria that's common, the common cause of the disease, trachoma. Uh, trachoma is the leading preventable cause of blindness worldwide. Uh, sulfa drugs have uh, pretty well eliminated that nowadays in the developed nations, but it is still a major problem in undeveloped countries. Uh, in fact, trachoma is considered a public health problem in 44 countries today and it is responsible for blindness or serious visual impairment in about 1.9 million people. Uh, so all of these things 
created the problem of blindness, and it was a major problem. Uh, and blind people hung around together. It was not uncommon to see a couple of blind people hanging on to each other, and so the disciples would have easily understood Jesus when he said in regard to the Pharisees, let them alone, they're blind guides of the blind. Uh, and if a blind man guides a blind man, both will fall into a pit. Uh, so we see the condition of the men. Second, and notice what they're crying out as they follow Jesus. Uh, this is a very important point. The two men follow him. They're in the crowd, shoving their way along, trying to stay with a group in their blindness, pushing and pressing along with everyone else as they leave the neighborhood of Jairus. And verse 27 says they were crying out. That word means to yell loudly, to scream, to shout. Uh, so they aren't just pleading in a normal tone of voice. They are calling out loudly in great anxiety and desperation. Perhaps because of the crowd noise, they're yelling in order to be heard. Uh, they clearly recognized he was their only hope of having their vision restored. There's no doubt they'd heard about Jesus. Uh, most likely they were a part of the crowd at Jairus' house and were aware of the resurrection of Jairus' daughter. And so they call out to Jesus. Their cry is a cry of desperation. And what they're saying indicates that they had the right understanding of who Jesus was uh, and the right attitude towards him. The text says they're crying out, have mercy on us, son of David. Now, why did they say that? Why did they call Jesus the son of David? Did they know his lineage from Joseph, who was in the line of David? Or did they know that Mary was also in the lineage of David? I, I'm pretty sure they didn't know that. Uh, but what did they know? Well, they knew that the common de Jewish designation for the Messiah was son of David. These two guys recognized Jesus to be the Messiah. And what Matthew wrote, and when Matthew wrote his gospel, he knew that that was a point of Jewish recognition. That's why back in chapter 1, verse 1, when he begins writing this gospel, he starts the record of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David. That term is a messianic affirmation. He is the promised one, the, the anointed one. And that title, Son of David, contains the concept of dominion and royalty and kingship that the prophets spoke about the Messiah. The Old Testament said that the Messiah would be a man, the seed of a woman, Genesis 3.15, who would come to redeem man from the curse. And then God narrowed it down in Genesis 22, saying that the Messiah would not just be the seed of the woman, but would come through the seed of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. And in Genesis 49.10, we learn that the ruler of Israel will come from Judah. And finally, you move to 2 Samuel 7, 12 and 13. And God says to David, when your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you who will come forth from you and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build, my house for, uh, build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Folks, that was not fulfilled in Solomon. That is the Messiah, the son of David, and every Jew understood how to interpret 2 Samuel 7. They knew that there would come one who was the ultimate son of David. In Luke 1.32, 
the angel Gabriel told Mary, He will be great and shall be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. In verse 69, Zacharias blessed God's name and said that he had raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of David his servant. In Luke 2.4, it says that Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family of David. And in Acts 2.29-36, Jesus is identified as the fulfillment of the promise to David. And Paul says the same thing in his epistles. And as John concludes the book of Revelation in chapter 22, verse 16, Jesus says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. So from Genesis to Revelation, we see that there is a Messiah coming and he will come from David's lineage. Turn with me for a moment and look at a couple of scriptures I think are important. Look over at Matthew 21.9. Matthew 21, 9. I want this to be firmly in your mind. Here you have Jesus making his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Multitudes hailing and praising him and throwing palm branches down in front of him at his feet. And verse 9 says, The crowds going ahead of him and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna to who? The son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. They're saying, this is the Messiah. The word Hosanna means save now. So this crowd is saying he's coming in the Lord's name. He's the son of David who's coming to save us. Now, as you realize, this crowd's very fickle, aren't they? Because just a couple of days later, they're calling for his crucifixion. But at this moment, they're giving him messianic titles. And, those, and of those messianic titles, none is more direct than the title Son of David. Now flip over a couple of pages to chapter 22. And what we see here is that not only did the fickle crowd know that Jesus, know that the Son of David was the right title for the Messiah, but so did the Pharisees, who never did believe in Christ. Matthew 22, beginning verse 41. We're told, now while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question. What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, the son of David. So both the crowd and the Pharisees knew that the Messiah was the son of David. Now, going back to Matthew 9, when these two blind men come along in verse 27, and they call him son of David. They are affirming that they believe that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah. They're saying this is the rightful heir, the king of Israel. And perhaps they recalled Isaiah 35.5 that said he would come open the eyes of the blind when he came. So with their understanding of who Jesus was, look at their attitude toward him as seen when they cried out to him. They say, have mercy on us. They felt a deep need. They, they believed that Jesus was the Messiah. They believed 
from what they had heard about him, that he had the power to bring the kingdom blessings. And yet they know that they are undeserving, and that's why they ask for mercy. And that's something the Pharisees never asked for, because they were self-sufficient. They thought they did everything that God expected. They thought they'd earned everything God had to give. Uh, and so, therefore, they had no need for mercy. And you, But you see, mercy is giving you what you don't deserve and can't earn. It's withholding from you what you do deserve. So these two came with not only a right understanding of who Jesus was, but a right understanding of how unworthy they were. They sought mercy and they went to the right person. In his book, Kingdom Living Here and Now, John MacArthur writes the following to describe how merciful Jesus was. Quote, He was the most merciful human being who ever lived. He reached out to the sick and healed them. He reached out to the crippled and gave them legs to walk. He healed the eyes of the blind, the ears of the deaf, the mouths of the dumb. He found prostitutes and tax collectors and those who were debauched and drunken, and he drew them into the circle of his love and redeemed them and set them on their feet. He took the lonely and made them feel loved. He took little children and gathered them into his arms and loved them. Never was there a person on the face of the earth with the mercy of this one. Once a funeral procession came by and he saw a mother weeping because her son was dead. She was already a widow and now she had no child to care for her. Who would care? Jesus stopped the funeral procession, put his hand on the casket, and raised the child from the dead. He cared. End quote. Well, that's Jesus. Merciful. Hebrews 2.17 says he had to be made like his brethren in all things so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make a propitiation for, for the sins of the people. Titus 3.5 says he saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to what? His mercy. Ephesians 2.4 says that God is rich in mercy. Lamentations 3.22 and 23 tells us that the Lord's loving kindnesses indeed never cease for his compassions never fail. They're new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. He is a God of mercy. He has mercy for healing and mercy for saving. It's available to these two desperate men. And so they follow along. They had a right knowledge. They had a right attitude. And they're screaming that they believe he's the Messiah and begging and pleading with him that he would extend them the mercy that they really didn't even deserve. And what's interesting to me is that up until this point, Jesus pays no attention to them. Not at all. He lets them just keep pouring out their heart, persistently demonstrating their genuineness as a way of pulling them out of their, from the superficial, fickle followers in the crowd. If the, their faith is real, they will persist. They will not turn around until he heals them. They'll continue to follow him. And so he tests their faith. He makes it run to its extremity to prove it's genuine. Notice just how far they followed him. Verse 28 says, When he entered the house, the blind men came up to him. They're so persistent, they went right on into the house with Jesus. We aren't told whose house this was, but the Greek has the definite article there. It's the house, not a house. Okay? Okay. 
Jesus had a couple of homes he stayed in. Normally, it seems like he stayed in Peter's home uh, when he was up north in Galilee, and he stayed with Mary, Martha, and Lazarus when he was down country in Judah. So since this is in Capernaum, uh, this is probably referring to Peter's house. Uh, you know, the one with the hole in the roof from in the upper room because Jesus had healed a paralytic there earlier the same day. Okay? I'm, I'm struck by the utter lack of privacy that Jesus had. Uh, there's relentless pressure, unrelenting people who just dogged his footsteps. Uh, he went in the house, and they went right in the house after him. I don't think any of us can even begin to fathom what it must have been like to have these tragic people just clinging to him all through his ministry, knowing no moments of privacy unless it's late in the night uh, when he would often go away to a private place of prayer. So after they enter the house, Jesus finally responds to them. But look what happens. It's a very important truth here. Every one of the healings we've seen in this chapter involves persistence, and that is how Jesus drew out true faith. That's why all the healings we see so far are not only physical healings, but they are spiritual conversions as well, because he pulls their faith that far. The paralytic and his friends, in order to get him healed, had to literally tear the roof apart. That's persistence. They didn't say, hey, it's crowded in there, Johnny, let's come back another day. No, they took the roof apart. Yes. Yeah, of a righteous man avails much. They were fervent. They were fervent. Yeah. And Jairus, he says, my daughter's dead. Jesus heads that way. And along the way, he stopped and healed a woman with a hemorrhage, and he talked with her. You can imagine how anxious Jairus was getting. His daughter's dead. Time is passing, and yet... Jesus takes this, has this little interlude going along. And even in the healing of the woman with the hemorrhage who grabbed his tassel, he didn't just walk on. He stopped and had her come forward and pour out her heart and had a little dialogue with her. He made her a firmer faith. And now here he goes again. He makes these blind men follow him all the way into the house and even there before he finally turns around to them. Look at the middle of verse 28. And Jesus said to them, do you believe that I'm able to do this? Now, you might think that's a strange question. I mean, these two guys have been following him through the crowd, even though they're blind, and followed him right into the house. They are obviously very determined. Isn't that proof that they believe he can heal them? Well, I don't think Jesus is questioning their faith. I think he's drawing them out of them a more complete public profession. Uh, he wanted to hear the affirmation of their faith in their own confession. Paul said in Romans 10:9, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So I believe he's drawing out a verbal confession, an affirmation of that faith. They might have said, well, we think you might be able. Uh, so he wants to affirm the genuineness of their faith. And so so that it would stand as a testimony to what's necessary for genuine conversion. He says, do you believe I'm able to do this? And they say, what? Yes, yes Lord. <clears throat> and what did, they call, what, what did they call him? Lord. What did Romans 10, 9 say? 
if you confess with your mouth Jesus as what? Lord. Lord. That was the affirmation of their faith. Yes, affirmed their belief he was able to do that, what they asked him, and Lord affirmed their belief that he was the divine Messiah, the coming Savior. I also believe he wanted to separate them from those who were looking for a human political and military deliverer who would overthrow Rome. So their testimony also affirmed the belief that Jesus was more than a highly competent, charismatic human leader. It affirmed that they believed that he had the power of God to heal them and that he was truly the Messiah, the Lord, with the right to reign over his kingdom. Now, as I've said before, faith is not necessary for healing. Okay? The Gospels are loaded with times that Jesus healed and people didn't have any faith. But faith is necessary for conversion. And Jesus wanted to bring these men all the way that their faith would take them. And when a man says, I need mercy, and you're the promised Messiah, and I believe you have the divine power of God, and you use the title Lord, that's consummate saving faith. And so Jesus was drawing them to that. So I believe that when they said, yes, Lord, it had all the meaning it could possibly have. I believe it was a saving affirmation. And so we move to verse 29, and, and, and then the beginning of verse 30 says, Then he touched their eyes, saying, It shall be done to you according to your faith. And their eyes were opened. Without fanfare, he simply touched their eyes. He didn't do like the so-called faith healers do today when they shout things such as, by the power of the Spirit, be healed. Uh, he just touched their eyes. Uh, you don't need to expend a lot of energy when you're God, and the only situation you're dealing with is a couple of blind guys. <laughs> Remember, according to John 1.3, he's the one who created everything that has ever been created. So he can certainly handle a couple of blind men. Did you ever stop to think that according to Colossians 1.17, in him all things hold together. And Hebrews 1.3 says that he upholds all things by the word of his power. That means he is the sustainer and maintainer of all that is. So while he was standing there looking at these two blind men, he was also upholding the entire universe. That speaks strongly of the doctrine of the Trinity, that although he was here in the flesh, he was still one with God the Father and sustained all that is. It's incomprehensible to our finite minds, but it's true. So two blind men begging for God's mercy is not a problem at all for him. And all he does is touch their eyes. He didn't have to touch their eyes to heal them, did he? But it was an act of compassion. He, he was showing them he cared for them and understood their need. Human touch is a powerful communicator of love and compassion, and so Jesus touched them. Notice the phrase at the end of verse 29, it shall be done to you according to your faith. How much faith did they have? Did they have enough to be healed? Yes. Yes. Did they have enough faith to be saved? Yes. I don't think faith is the issue in the healing. I think faith is the issue in the saving. Their faith was big enough to encompass redemption. I say that because they clearly believed that he was the Messiah. They clearly believed he was able to heal them. They clearly recognized him as, their, as the Lord. That was where their faith was. 
I'm not sure if you know it or not, but faith in itself is nothing. Archbishop Richard Trench, who was William Wilberforce's chaplain and the dean of Westminster Abbey, wrote these words in 1850 in his work titled Notes on the Miracles of Our Lord. Uh, he was writing about this particular miracle here in Matthew's Gospel. Quote, The faith which in itself is nothing is yet the organ for receiving everything. It is the conducting link between man's emptiness and God's fullness. And herein lies all the value faith has. Faith is the bucket let down into the fountain of God's grace, without which the man could never draw water of life from the wells of salvation. For the wells are deep, and of himself man has nothing to draw with. Faith is the purse which cannot of itself make its owner rich, and yet effectually enriches by the wealth which it contains. End quote. That's a great statement about faith. Faith is the bucket that dips into the wells of salvation. I love that. Faith is the purse, which in itself is not the riches, but it contains the riches. It's that by which we receive what God graciously gives. And so Jesus, in effect, says to these two men, your purse is big enough to receive all that I have to give. Your bucket's big enough to gather the waters of the wells of salvation. It will be done to you according to your faith. And verse 30 says, and their eyes were opened. What an incredible thing. He has the power to give sight. He has the power to save. Now listen to the command he gives to them in verse 30. And Jesus sternly warned them, see that no one knows about this. Can you imagine that? How does he expect these two guys to go out and not tell other people? But he's very serious. The verb that's translated sternly warned is very strong. It means to sternly forbid or to vehemently forbid. Uh, it means to express indignation, to censure someone. It was used of a highly agitated horse that was snorting. It was used of scolding someone in Mark 14, 5. So why did Jesus say to these two men, uh, that why would he say this to these two men so strongly? Well, some people say, well, he's trying to hide the fact that he was a miracle worker. Well, that can't be true because he was doing all kinds of miracles. Uh, and he was doing them in public. So it can't mean that he didn't want anybody else to know about it because these two guys' relatives were going to find out real soon, weren't they? So there must be something bigger, something different than that. It isn't that he wanted them to hide his miracles or else he wouldn't have done it to them in public. And it isn't that he doesn't want anyone to know because everyone who's around these guys are going to know. So why did he tell them not to spread this everywhere? Let me explain to you why I think he did. I think the best explanation is that if these two men went around telling everyone that Jesus was the son of David, the Messiah, heir to the throne, that would create problems. That would have been premature. Uh, the Jews wouldn't understand it because he didn't come through the Jewish establishment and he wasn't the political conqueror they desired. The Romans wouldn't understand it either because Caesar was the king. And ultimately it was that very affirmation that he was the king that ended in his crucifixion. 
and his hour had not yet come, as the Apostle John was prone to say throughout his gospel. So what he's saying now is, is it's not yet time to start things moving in that direction. God is on a divine timetable. It may also have been that he still wanted people to conclude things for themselves. I think he still wanted people to come and see for themselves rather than to hear about him through hearsay. If these men went beyond the circle of the people who knew them and started broadcasting it, people would say, well, how do we know you were really blind? We don't believe that. We don't buy that. It might be better if people came themselves and examined before they made such a conclusion. So those are my ideas about the reason that he said this to this man, these, these men. He didn't want a fickle, premature movement to enthrone him as the king. He didn't want a whole lot of people following him who were unrepentant and didn't understand the kingdom just looking for a circus atmosphere. He didn't want to start a revolutionary uprising on behalf of himself at the wrong place in the wrong time. So he says, don't say anything, and I mean this, don't say a thing. He's very stern. What do they do? Verse 31. <laughs> they went out and spread the news about him throughout all that land. They did exactly what he told them not to do. They disobeyed. Now there's a sense in which this is understandable. I mean, if you were blind and some great eye surgeon restored your vision, you'd be very excited and you would be telling everybody about that doctor and how they ought to go to him for all their eye problems. And these guys are no different. They want everybody to know how Jesus healed them and restored their sight. But because it was disobedience to the Lord, what they did was wrong. Uh, but it, it was the kind of sin that only a grateful, overflowing heart would commit. Uh, these guys could not resist the overwhelming desire to tell everyone of their wonderful deliverance and of the Lord who delivered them. But I think this is a wonderful analogy of salvation. Their blindness became an analogy, becomes an analogy of spiritual blindness, being lost and blinded by sin. First, they had a need. They were blind and they knew it. That's where salvation begins. No one comes to God unless he senses a need, unless he knows he cannot see. He's blind. He has no resources. He has no hope. He can't discern the truth. There's a sense of desperation. Yes. I have a friend I'm trying to witness to, and I just don't get it. Yeah. Yeah. So now I think it's a simple thing. I just need to pray the Lord will give her the faith. Yeah. I heard you're not the first person that's told me that same thing this week talking about some friend of theirs that they share the gospel with, and the friend just looks at him and says, I just don't understand. She has a friend up north that's witnessing yeah. to her, too, and then we gave her a gospel of John. Her friend said, see, the see. Lord's trying to work in you. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So you'd have to start with a feeling of, uh, with a sense of need. And then need is followed by knowledge. They found out who Jesus was, and they knew that he was their deliverer, the Messiah, the son of David. Their knowledge was right. They sought to know, they found the truth, and that's how salvation comes about. First, there's a deep need, and out of the deep need comes a searching for the right answer. And then that was followed by a sense of sinfulness. They said, have mercy. We're not here to tell you we deserve anything. We're here to tell you we need something we don't deserve. And that's how salvation is. You come with a cry for mercy. And then there was faith. They said, yes, Lord. 
We followed you persistently, crying to you. Doesn't that evidence our faith? Jeremiah 29, 13 says, You will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. So salvation begins with a need, the knowledge of the solution, a sense of sinfulness that you don't deserve the solution, and faith that persists in reaching out. And then comes confession. Do you believe? Yes, Lord. The affirmation of Jesus' lordship. Submission. Devotion, love. Yes, Lord, we believe. Then comes conversion. It shall be done to you according to your faith. And you know what often follows conversion? Weakness. That's right. Disobedience. Why? Because when you're born again, you're a newborn baby in Christ, and babies don't know how to discern. They can be tossed to and fro. They don't know the deep things of God. And there's a certain weakness there, a certain susceptibility to disobedience. Sometimes even in their zeal, they're disobedient. Well, that's the story of the miracle of sight. But the passage doesn't end there. Instead, we move on to the miracle of sound. And we will not finish this, but we'll introduce it. Look at verses 32 and 33. As they were going about, going out, a mute demon-possessed man was brought to him. After the demon was cast out, the mute man spoke, and the crowds were amazed and were saying, Nothing like this has ever been seen in Israel. James Montgomery Boyce points out that this passage is all about speaking. In verse 32, the demon-possessed man could not speak. In verse 33, the man is healed and speaks. And then the crowds speak about Jesus. And in verse 34, the Pharisees speak about Jesus. And back in verse 31, those who were healed speak testimonies for Jesus. So this miracle truly focuses on people speaking in regard to Jesus, whether about him, against him, or for him. So then as these two formerly blind men are leaving the house, a mute, demon-possessed man is brought to Jesus. The the word used here, which is translated mute, is also translated as deaf in Matthew 11.5. Uh, that's because those who are totally deaf from a young age are most of the time unable to speak either. Deafness was very common. Uh, there are those with congenital defects, just like we have today. Uh, also, as children today get ear infections, which if left untreated can affect their ability to hear, so too in that society where uh, there were no antibiotics, where medicine was very rudimentary, uh, there were many deaf people. And in addition to, according to various scholars, they had a problem during those days with desert sand blowing into their ears, getting stuck in the earwax, that was deep in their ears and they couldn't clean it out and so they literally became deaf just from clogged up ears with earwax and sand. But this man's deafness wasn't any of those things. His deafness was and mutism was specifically identified as being caused by a demon. So we see from scripture it's possible for demons to affect people in a physical way. And so one or more had affected this man. And I'm going to stop right there. Any, uh, any comments or questions or anything else before we conclude?
Yes. Yeah, it's a matter of without faith, it's impossible to please him. It, he, you know, it's a matter of uh, spirit granting faith to believe. So, did I see your hand, Phil? Yeah. Uh, did I understand you to say that uh, they weren't necessarily healed by their faith? That's right. That's kind of converse to what I believe because. Isn't there scripture that says because of your faith you are healed? He just said it there yeah. and that. But but the faith that they had, he said it will be done according to your faith. Uh, but they demonstrated faith in him as the Messiah. And, he, and they are, it is saving faith that's taking place here. And he is graciously giving them sight. He didn't have to give them sight, but he did. But no, because he healed thousands of people who had no faith at all. So faith was not an essential element of healing. Okay. Okay? Yes. Ingrid. Jesus tells uh, the two men, see that no one knows it. And he could have, I mean, he tells them that knowing that they're going to go and say yeah. it anyway. So is that for our purpose to mm -hmm. believe it? Mm -hmm. That when God tells us something, no matter how excited we are, we should still keep shut? <laughs> <laughs> It, it's telling, it's showing us an example of uh, their disobedience to his instructions, and so, so uh, they, uh, uh, yeah, it's they shouldn't have. They, he knew they would disobey, but, but uh, uh, he told them to obey, and that he gives us lots of instructions in his word. That he commands us to obey. Does he know we're going to disobey? There's all kinds of reasons there. Frank? I'm stretching that. You know, when uh, people talk about asking questions about people um, not understanding, not seeing, and I, I keep going back to 2 Corinthians 4, verse 3 and 4. Paul says, and even if our gospel is veiled, in other words, it's covered, people don't understand, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the mind of the unbelieving, so they may not see the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ Jesus. So when we look at lost people, we have to understand they have been blinded by the God of this world. That's why they don't understand. So for us, it's simple because God opened our eyes. But if God did not open our eyes, this is us. Yep. I know for me, up until I was in my 20s, the God of this world had me blinded. I just, people shared the gospel. I thought it was stupid. I thought it was ridiculous. The only reason why I'm here is my grace is not opening my eyes, and that's what we have to see. Yes, excellent point. Excellent point. Yes. Can you imagine this universe if God wouldn't have control of it? How things 